Father, we thank you that we can hear the voice of Jesus speaking to each one of us. Father, you allow us to hear his voice in your word. You allow us to hear his voice through your spirit. You allow us to hear his voice sometimes through the people around us or even the situations we face. Your word tells us in Romans 1 that even creation, in Psalm 19, creation declares your glory. And so, Father, I pray that we would hear your voice tonight. My shepherd, I pray that you would feed us, that you would guide us, that you would calm our hearts, encourage us, whatever it is we need from you tonight, let us receive it from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you have probably heard me talk about a book by the name of A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Uh, if you have never heard of this book, uh, your homework for this week is to go on Amazon or wherever it is you order your books and order A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Little paperback editions of it are like $6. Uh, it's an incredible book written by a man named Philip Keller. Uh, I'm going to borrow from this book and I'm going to quote from it several more than once. Um, but he was actually a shepherd. He uh, spent time tending sheep. Uh, and because of that, he had a very unique perspective on what Psalm 23 means to us. Because the Bible often refers to God as our shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And quite often we are called sheep which is not a compliment. I know I've told you about the pastor's conference I went to where we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where it said not many, you know, not many strong, not many noble, not many, and it gives a list of things were called that God could confound the wise with the foolish. And, and the, the guy who was giving the speech, I still remember his name, Ken Great, pastors a church in Bangor, Maine. He said, when you were called, you were not complimented. Now, knowing what we know about sheep, it's kind of the same for us who are called to be followers of Christ um, because, unfortunately, sheep are not the brightest animals. With that being said, we will read Psalm 23 in its entirety, and then we'll break it down. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in the first three verses, we're going to look at the shepherd's care and leading. When we get to verses 4 and 5, 
we're going to talk about the shepherd's protection. And then when we get to verse 6, we're going to talk about the shepherd's promise. So in this opening of this amazing and well-known Hebrew song of praise written by David, the shepherd king, we begin with a look into how the Lord, our shepherd, leads us. And as he leads us, he provides for us physically and spiritually to the point that we need nothing that is not from him. So it starts in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jehovah is my ra'ah. If you want to spell it, it's R-A-A-H. It's pronounced raw, R-A-W, with another A-W, and that's the word for shepherd. As such, he is the one who in all his glory, righteousness, power, love, and every other aspect of his character, he has chosen to shepherd us. And that is a really incredible thought because we did not bring ourselves into the flock because we can't save ourselves. We respond to the invitation of the gospel. We respond to the Holy Spirit stirring our hearts when we hear how Jesus died and rose again for our sin. But we can't bring ourselves into the flock. He has to do it. And he offered us a place through faith in Jesus by grace. And he chose to bring us in when we believed. He does not have to be our shepherd. He chooses to be. That to me is an incredible thought. Uh, Lydia apparently stepped out, but, but I tell this to her all the time and she retorts. Because uh, for some reason, my children are a little snarky. Must have got that from their mother. And every now and then, um, I will make some sort of comment about how my children cost me a lot of money. I mean, we, we all, we're all there sometimes, every now and then. And she looks at me and she says, well, you're the one who chose to have children. She's right. I did choose to have children. All of our children were very much on purpose. I remember growing up, and I haven't told a lot of stories about my family um, at least not growing up, because most of them aren't all that pleasant. But um, I remember growing up, and my mom's probably listening, so she may tell this a little bit differently. Uh, but I remember growing up, uh, and my mom used to tell me that my, uh, my dad never didn't want more kids, but she did. Okay. But then my dad used to tell me that my mom really didn't want more kids, but he did. Now, knowing what I know about biology, I'm more apt to believe my mom than I am my dad, um, <laughs> for a host of other reasons. Uh, but, I, but I told Leah when we got married, we're not going to have any of our kids on accident. Because I want each of them to know that we wanted them when the Lord gave them to us, which was really interesting. It took four months for John, five months for Hannah, and two weeks for Lydia. Was a little proud of the last one. But he chose us. And I love that thought. I love the idea, right? Uh, people, most of us have been watching The Chosen, um, the, the, the TV show about the life of Jesus. 
And what's so interesting about it is it's meant to be from the perspective of the disciples. It's from the perspective of the people that Jesus chose to have with him. And were those people? Were those people? The second part of verse 1 says, I shall not want. Philip Keller said that this refers to not having any lack, but also it carries with it the idea that we are utterly contented in the good shepherd's care. And consequently, we do not crave or desire anything more. Now, I am not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of us are utterly contented in the care of our shepherd, right? In other words, do any of us ever have any discontent in our lives? Don't, don't put your hand up. I already know the answer. Because I know what the answer is for me. Um, but the interesting thing is we don't have to be discontented. He has given us everything. That's what James 117, 16, 116, 117, James chapter 1, uh, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or change. Right? Every, everything we need comes from him. Now, what we think we need, well, that's a different story. Um, but everything we need comes from him. So that takes us to verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still water. So here we see the physical care of God for his flock, as it is a shepherd's duty to make sure his sheep have proper nourishment. God takes care of us by providing for our needs and promising to do so. Uh, you can go read Matthew chapter 6, Philippians 4.19. Uh, Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But not only does he promise to take care of us physically, he promises to take care of us spiritually. And we're going to get to that in a moment. So green pastures. Uh, Philip Keller made a note that in order for a, a, a sheep or for a flock of sheep to lie down and rest, they need four things. They have to be free of fear. They have to be free of friction. Uh, and within a flock, you know, say two males are competing for a female, something like that. If that type of friction is going on in the flock or, or something else, um, the sheep won't rest. Uh, they have to be free of pests, and we're going to talk more about that later. And they have to be free of hunger. Now take those four things and just ponder. I honestly think we need the same things, don't we? in order to rest. We need to be free of fear. And, and God has promised us that we can be. We need to be free of fiction. Fiction? Don't read fiction. <laughs> we need to be free of friction. In other words, it's hard to rest when there is chaos in our lives. It's hard to rest when there's conflict in our lives. Uh, we need to be free of pests. You read into that, whatever you like. And we, of course, need to be free of hunger. You ever try to go to sleep when you're really hungry? Not a pleasant feeling. He said, a flock that is restless, discontented, always agitated, and disturbed 
never does well. And this is how God cares for us. He makes sure our needs are met, needs, not wants, so we can be free of all of the things that would make us unhealthy or keep us from his peace. Now, just take those four things again, right? We apply them to our own lives. Apply them to the church. What if within a church you have fear, right? You walk into the building and you're afraid you're going to be judged. Or you walk into the building and, and you're afraid um, that somebody, I guess that's judgment again. All right, I need another example. <laughs> um, uh, but you walk into a building, maybe, maybe you'll fear that you'll be accepted or maybe you fear that, you know, the, the pastor's a goofy person. Um, or just within the church itself. What if you're afraid to talk to your brothers and sisters who sit next to you uh, in the chairs every weekend because, well, you don't trust them or, you know, something along those lines? How healthy is that church going to be? What if that church is full of friction? What if there's conflict, unresolved issues, right? And, and, and uh, I've been doing this for a while, and I've had people come to me before. It hasn't happened here. But I've had people come to me before, and, and they go, I, I need to talk to you. Okay. So they set up an appointment or whatever. They come into the office, and they're like, you know, I just got to tell you, so-and-so in the church, they did this, they did that, they did the other thing. I really have a problem with them. I don't know if I can keep coming to the church as long as they're I've, I've heard things like this. And I always look at them and ask them the same question. Have you talked to them? Well, well, no. I'm like, well, you're not going to solve it talking to me. If you have an issue with them, you're going to solve it by talking to them. That answer is not always well received. What about pests from within or without? We could come up with a lot of things that could be pests. Right? What if, uh, and you guys hear me say this all the time, but what if political division makes its way into the church? That's a pest. Big time. What if cultural division, what if any kind of division makes its way into the church? Certainly a pest. That's why the Bible tells us to rebuke a divisive person. And then finally, hunger. What would make a church hungry for not being fed the word? I've been in those, I've never stayed in those churches. I've visited those churches. You know, you go into a church and it's, it's sermon light. And I, you guys know that's not me. Pastor Chuck, many years ago, actually I think this is in my notes later, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, he used to, when I was at the Calvary Chapel Bible College, he would come down and do chapel on Fridays. And he always told uh, all of his students to make your sheep the best fed and best loved sheep in town. And so I try to make that my goal. I don't always succeed, but I try. He leads his sheep beside the still waters. Now, when sheep are thirsty, they will seek out any water source. They do not care if it's polluted, if it's poison. They don't care. Um, and additionally, sheep are very skittish. So if you, say, took the sheep down to the Gunnison Water Park, they wouldn't drink from the river there because the water's moving too quickly and it would frighten them. 
So a shepherd has to find a place for the sheep to get the water they need. And we're no different. We need to be free of all those things that disturb us. Matthew 5, 6 tells us, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Then we get to verse 3, where we get to God's spiritual care for us more explicitly. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. I love this Hebrew word, not only because of what it means, but because of the word itself. The word is shub. Shub. S-H-O-O-B. I don't know why I get a kick out of that word, but I do. Shub. It means to convert, deliver, or draw back home again. So the idea here is when the shepherd restores our soul, right, it can mean to our conversion when we first come to Christ. It speaks of our deliverance, deliverance from sin, deliverance from slavery to the world and to our own flesh, and then to draw us back home again. Because even after we're converted, and even after God has delivered us from a multitude of things, well, we're like sheep. And it's easy for us to go astray. And so he draws us back home again. Think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you are unfamiliar, and just for anybody listening, it'll just make everything a little more complete. Uh, you had this guy who was wealthy, he had two kids. Uh, the older apparently was, you know, the good kid. And the younger went to his dad and said, Dad, give me my inheritance. Now, in Jewish culture, you only got your inheritance when your father died. So what he said was, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. Now, actually, according to the law, um, his dad could have had him stoned to death. But he didn't. Instead, he gave him his money. He goes off. He wastes it on what the Bible, we always call him the prodigal son because he wasted it on prodigal living, right? He wasted it on, uh, on, on feasts and alcohol and prostitutes and all this other stuff until he was out of money. And then he gets a job feeding pigs. But he wasn't even allowed to eat the slop that he was giving to the pigs. So finally, and I love the way Luke says it, he came to himself. In other words, he woke up. He said, my father's servants have it better than me. I don't deserve to be a son, but I'll go home, and maybe he'll just make me a hired hand so I don't starve to death. And he goes home. And on his way home, his father sees him from afar off. Now, I read a book uh, about the prodigal son by Henry Nouwen. Uh, and Henry Nouwen is an amazing author. If you've never read anything by him, you have to bear in mind that he, he was a Catholic priest. He died a little while back. Uh, but he was a Catholic priest, so he does tend to write from a little more Catholic perspective. That's okay, because um, he's an outstanding writer. Now, one of the things that he pointed out that I did not know is when a child abandoned the household like this, even if they didn't do what this kid did, but just, I don't want to work for you, I'm leaving home, when they would come back, all the people of the village would meet that kid on the road and break pottery in front of them. And it meant to symbolize you have broken relationship with your father. 
You have broken relationship with your family. You have broken relationship with your community. You cannot come back. And they would turn them away. But the father was watching. Why was the father watching? So he could get to his son before the village could. Right? Now, we don't know that. We, we don't have a Jewish background. But the people who were listening to Jesus did. They would have understand what that meant. And so he runs out to his son, and his, the son starts into his speech. You know, Dad, I blew it. Uh, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he just tells him, stop it, stop it, stop it. He grabs one of the servants. Bring him a robe. Bring him shoes. Bring him a ring. Go kill the fatted calf. My son is home. Love it. That's how the father reacts to us. That's how he restores us, even when we do things that are stupid. And of course, you have to finish it off, right? You got the big brother who comes home. Why, why is there a party going on? One of the servants says, oh, your brother came home and he refuses to go inside. Dad comes out. Why won't you go in? This son of yours, right? Not my brother, but this son of yours wasted your money on hookers and you killed the fatted calf. You've never let me have a party. And his father looks at him and said, son, everything I have is yours, which is true. The other kid wasted his inheritance, so now everything that was left belonged to the older brother. And he said, uh, everything I have is yours, but it's right that we celebrate. For your brother was dead, and now he's alive. He restores our soul. And then he leads us in the paths of righteousness. He guides us in the way we must go in order to be righteous. This speaks both of being led by the Spirit into a relationship with Christ where we are saved, justified, and made positionally sanctified before God. And then being led by the Spirit into the Word, by the Spirit and the Word into a holy life that honors Him. We talked when we were back in Hebrews chapter something, uh, I want to say it was eight or nine about positional and practical sanctification. The word sanctification, fancy word that means set apart. When we get saved, we are set apart and made righteous before God. We call it a positional sanctification. We call it justification. We call it salvation. Um, all kinds of words that end with I-O-N. But then there's a practical sanctification that as we grow in our relationship with Christ, we become more holy. We follow him more closely. We have a more intimate relationship with him. Psalm 56 13 reminds us that not only does he restore us when we are saved, but as I said earlier he restores us when we make mistakes that lead us away from him. So then we move into verse 4 the shepherd's protection. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. So through the whole psalm, right, Psalm 23 is vastly popular. Uh, in all the years I've been a pastor, um, I've done a number of funerals. I've officiated a number of funerals. and I, I don't actually even know how many, um, and I think only once, maybe twice, did I not read Psalm 23, or somebody 
read Psalm 23 at the funeral. It's just a common thing. Um, so a lot of people, though, know verse 4. Why? Because, well, it's famous, like the rest of it. And these two verses present to us how our shepherd protects us. Remember, way back in 1 Samuel, uh, when David was trying to convince Saul to let him fight Goliath. Saul looked at him and said, Goliath's huge. He's been a warrior his whole life. You're a kid. You're a shrimp. This is a bad idea. And David looked at him and said, I have kept my father's sheep since I was a youth. And at the time, he was only a youth, probably 15, 16. He'd probably been watching sheep since he was five or six years old, maybe even a little younger, going out with his brothers or going out with his father to learn how to do so. And he said, one time a lion came in and took one of the sheep, and I grabbed him by the beard, and I killed him. So now we're going to get to the rod and staff in just a moment. It's going to explain how David managed to do this. He goes, then a bear came and tried to get one of my sheep, and I pried it from the bear's jaws and struck it and killed it. This Philistine is going to do the same way. Saul says, all right quite a speech but this is what a shepherd is willing to do for their sheep jesus said in john 10 11, i am the good shepherd the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep why like i love my pets i do i love my dogs if i was hiking with my dogs and the mountain lion got my dog i'm probably going to wave bye to the dog i i mean I, I think i'm a pretty good shot but i ain't that good of a shot that I'm going to catch a mountain lion running away with my dog in its mouth. We went to camp. It wasn't, was it, it wasn't last summer. It was the summer before. And we always take the kids for a hike on hike day. Kids look forward to it. Because not only is hike day a lot of fun, hike day is also pizza night. Uh, well, and we get breakfast burritos in the morning and homemade, fresh-made, you know, handmade pizza for dinner. Oh, it's love hike day. And one year, the game warden shows up at camp and goes, ah, you might not want to go hiking this time around. Well, why not? Well, because there were several hikers across the street from camp, less than a mile from camp, that they were walking their little, uh, what was it? It was something small, right? Not, not necessarily a chihuahua, but, but maybe a, a Pomeranian or something. It was a small little, you know, fake toy dog thing that should have been in a purse anyway. Um, mountain lion came out of the bushes, grabbed the dog, and ran. So they told us not to go. So, right, if that happened to my dog, not so much. What if it happened to one of my children? Oh, I would fight to the death to free my children. Right? Because it's different. So why would a shepherd do this? For sheep. Right? Not necessarily so that the sh he wouldn't get in trouble. Or not even so much because of his own livelihood. But if predators destroyed the flock, his family would starve. He did it. I'm sure shepherds cared for their sheep, but it's because he cared for his family. So it begins with the shepherd's presence. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And I love the word for with. It's not as cool as shub, so I didn't put it in here. But <laughs> the word, it doesn't simply mean his presence with us. 
right? You could be uh, going for a walk and, and your husband or wife goes with you. Or, uh, you know, we'll sometimes go pick up Aaron to go play pickleball. Aaron comes with us, right? That's one way. But this word takes it a different way. And that is that the shepherd takes us upon himself. And that can then be explained with the rest of that verse that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the rod and the staff were both used for two things, for protection and for correction. The staff, right, the shepherd's staff is the big crook, right, that you're used to seeing. Right? All our nativity scenes have a shepherd holding a staff that looks like a big candy cane. Um, oftentimes that was used to pull back an errant sheep or to whack, you know, if there was a smaller animal that was trying to annoy them, you could rack it. But they also carried a rod. Now, um, I'm not a truck driver, but have you ever seen the tire thumpers that truck drivers use to check their air pressure in their tires, right? It, it's not quite a baseball bat, um, but it's not short either. I, I don't know how long they are, maybe three feet long, solid piece of wood. This was the rod. Now, the rod would be used to defend the sheep. So, um, bear, David with the bear, grabbed the bear by the hair of his chinny chin chin took the rod and probably started beating it over the head until it died i can't imagine david walked away unscathed but that's what they would do that's what the rod was for but it was also for protection or for correction now sheep had to stay with the flock because sheep are dumb and as we know and we've talked about a lot of times uh, one of the reasons I encourage people to be part of a church, hopefully ours, but if not ours, at least a church, um, is because Satan loves to get us alone. Because when we're alone, we're easy pickings. Right? Does the wolf or, or the mountain lion or whatever it is, does it go after the biggest, fattest, healthiest sheep that's in the middle? Uh-uh. It waits until some sheep who maybe is having a hard time keeping up with the flock because it's sick or because it's weak or because it's, he waits till that sheep is separated from the flock. And even when wolves hunt, wolves will hunt in packs and they will separate two or three sheep from a flock like that if the shepherd's not there to stop it. Or the sheepdog, for that matter. And that's how, they, that's how they get us. That's how they get the sheep. That's how Satan gets us, right? It's really hard for Satan to tear you apart when you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who are caring for you. It's really hard. So, if the shepherd had a sheep that wandered off too often, he would take the rod and he would break the sheep's leg. Nice guy, right? But then what would he do? He would bind the leg and put the sheep on his shoulders until it healed. This goes back to when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear evil because you are with me. It's not that he's just walking alongside us. It's literally that he picks us up and puts us on his shoulders. That's what the shepherd would do. Break the sheep's leg and then carry it for however long, usually a few weeks, till that leg heals. Then what do you think that little sheep would do from then on? That sheep would never stray away from its shepherd. 
so much about this reminds me of Romans chapter 8, where we're taught not to live according to our flesh. We see Jesus and the Spirit interceding for us and empowering us, and we have the promise in verses 31 through 39 that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from his love. Because he takes us. Not only did he choose us, then he takes us on himself. And he holds us. So beautiful to me. And then we have the shepherd's preparation. That's just what I wrote in my notes. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. So I would highly encourage you to read the book or go through the study, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table, by Louis Giglio. Fantastic book, fantastic study. Uh, in that book, we were taught that our shepherd can prepare for us a feast even in the midst of our enemy. This translates to us by the illustration of shepherds who would go before their sheep to the green pastures where they would want them to graze. They would go before, they would deal with any danger before they would ever take their sheep there. So now consider Jesus our shepherd who, according to Hebrews 4.15, has experienced everything we've experienced, yet he did so without sin, so that he could be our sympathetic high priest. As a result of that, we know that we will never face anything alone because he has already been there. That's this idea that, that the sheep could eat and know they were safe, even though the wilderness around them would have been filled with predators because the shepherd went before them and made sure they were safe. So Philip Keller wrote, No wonder he makes every possible provision to ensure that when we have to cope with Satan, sin, or self, the contest will not be one-sided. Rather, we can be sure he has been in that situation before he is in it now again with us. And because of this, the prospects of our preservation are excellent. And then you anoint my head with oil. Now, there's two sides of this. One, there's the physical side of caring for sheep. And that is, um, pests love sheep. Even though they are surrounded by thick wool, uh, it's very so that makes it very difficult to get on their skin, but their noses, their ears, and their eyes are terribly vulnerable. And it can get to the point where sheep will have so many pests infesting their, their head that they will end up with infections that go into the brain and kill them. So back then, right today, they have all kinds of stuff to put on your sheep and prevent that. Back then, they used olive oil. Right? And, and Philip Keller, he talks about in the book, and I'm like, man, you got to love your sheep. I am not doing this for any of you. I love you all, but I'm not going to do this for you. Because you'd have to take the sheep and essentially put it in a headlock, because otherwise it's going to wiggle around and try to get away. And then you would dip your hand in the, in the thing of oil, and then you'd have to take your fingers and shove it up the sheep's nose to get the oil up the sheep's nose. You'd have to take your fingers and dig it into the sheep's ear, Right? Because you couldn't just rub it around the outside. The pest didn't care. They would get in there. 
So you had to get in there where the pests would go. You had to rub it all over their face and inside every facial orifice. Man. No thank you. But if they didn't do it, their sheep would die. Or at the very least be miserable if it didn't kill them. That, of course, applies to us in that we are protected from the infection and destruction of sin when we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Right? Throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is always seen as, uh, or every, not, every time we see oil, it's often uh, a picture of the Holy Spirit. Philip Keller wrote, There are those who contend that in the Christian life, one need only have a single initial anointing of God's Spirit. Yet, the frustrations of daily dilemmas demonstrate that one must have him come continuously to the troubled mind and heart to counteract the attacks of one's tormentors. Because you couldn't just, you know, stick your finger up your sheep's nose filled with oil once a summer. You had to do it regularly. We need that. It's why Jesus told us to ask our Father for the Holy Spirit in Luke eleven thirteen. It's why Paul taught us to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 because we cannot do this on our own. We need the power of God working in our lives because if we try to do it by ourselves, we are going to be in a lot of trouble. And not only do we need the power of God working in our lives, we need the power of God working in each other's lives, working in us. My cup runs over. I like this one. The phrase simply means that we as the vessel, the cup, will be satisfied in him. And we can consider then that when we are entirely satisfied in him, that will overflow into the lives of those around us. Psalm 17 verse 15 says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Jesus told us in John 7, 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what we are supposed to be. We go to God through the word, through prayer, through fasting, through silence and solitude, through worship, through fellowship, so many ways, but we go to him so he can fill us. And then when we're full, well, he just keeps pouring so that it can overflow out of our lives into the lives of those around us. It's a beautiful picture. And that brings us to verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalm ends with a promise that David knew to be true as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's actually two promises here. Number one, we can know that our shepherd will never fail to pour out his goodness and mercy on us throughout our lives. The word for goodness here is either to do or make good. Right? So he's either going to do good in our lives or he's going to make good on his promises and he's going to have mercy, favor, or grace on us throughout our lives. Uh, I, I'm an online missionary for, for uh, Global Media Outreach. I think you all know that, uh, except maybe Dan. But um, 
And in that, I, I get questions from people uh, and people all over the world who are seeking out answers about the Bible or about faith in Christ. Um, and uh, earlier this week, I got a message from someone in somewhere in Africa. I don't remember where. And their question was, how do I get the favor of God? I love that question. Because I wrote back and I said, congratulations, you already have it. All right, I didn't say it that way, but essentially that's what my message back to this person said. We can't earn the favor of God. God doesn't love me because I was good today. Because I probably wasn't. God doesn't love me because I'm a pastor or because I, you know, didn't cuss somebody out. Uh, I heard a sermon the other day that says, you know, people expect to be rewarded because they don't do things. And he says, if you, if you get home at night and expect a reward because you didn't kill anybody that day, you don't get a reward for that. You're not supposed to kill people. I, I thought it was a great message. But, um, but then we get this idea that if we do good, then God will, will reward us, then you know, he'll give us the Ferrari we've been praying for or whatever it might be. That's not how it works. We already have God's favor. He wants to bless us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It doesn't say if I'm really good. If I read my Bible enough or if I pray enough or if I go to church enough, then God will bless me. Now, read your Bible a lot, pray a lot, go to church a lot, but not to earn God's favor, but because you already have it. And you want to get to know the one who loves you so much that he poured out this favor and grace upon you when you did nothing to deserve it. Philip Keller wrote, not only is this a bold statement, but it is somewhat of a boast, an exclamation of implicit confidence in one who controls his career and destiny. In other words, we can have confidence in him, not because of anything we do, but because of what he does and what he has promised to us. And I know it's not always easy. It's not easy for us to acknowledge it. It's not easy for us to pay attention to it. Um, I got another message from somebody uh, through GMO who asked me to pray for them. They were going through some difficulty, and they said, can you please pray that God would be with me? Another great, I wrote back, I'm like, oh, he is. He is. I know that. Not because I'm smarter, because he told us. He told us. So when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we can know based on the promises of his word, that his goodness and mercy will always be ours. Now, I encourage you to read Romans chapter 6. We shouldn't take, try to take advantage of that. We shouldn't presume upon God's grace, but we can be assured that it will always be with us. The second promise, it will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the promise of eternal life for all who have been saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised this to us. In John 14, 2 and 3, he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Too many one-syllable words made that 
a little easy. I don't have a pulpit to pound. But where I am, you may be also. I love that promise. I love it because this is not, you know, you ask a lot of people, you know, I, I don't know, I, 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 I ask this question from time to time. So if you died, what would happen? Oh, I really hope I go to heaven. You ask me that question, I am going directly into the presence of God. How do you know? Because Jesus died for me. And he rose for me. And he offered it to me. And I accepted it. And he forgave me. He restored my soul. He delivered me. When I mess up, he brings me home again. So I don't think I'm going to heaven. I don't hope I might get there. I know. I know that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not because of me, all because of him. So as we close, I literally wrote, I struggle to close this. You know, I'm, I'm usually pretty good at writing my conclusions. But I wrote, I, I struggle to close this. But I felt that it was important to apply it to our lives. So I'm going to throw out a few applications for you, um, other than some of the things we've hit. But my first one is, um, is, would have to be, the Lord is our shepherd. Right? Now this could mean that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, or it could be, um, wow, I'm going to start that sentence over again. My first application would have to be that the Lord is our shepherd. This could mean, are we saved by the blood of Jesus? Because he's not our shepherd until we're saved, right? And he offers that to us, and he wants to bring us into his flock, but it doesn't do any good until we actually receive it. Or it could mean that if we are saved, do we trust and follow him the way a sheep follows their shepherd? Next, I would ask if we know that our good shepherd provides for us all that we need. He provides for us spiritually, he provides for us physically, he provides for us emotionally, and do we trust him to do so? See, the reason the sheep stayed with their shepherd is because they trusted him. They trusted him. Or her. There were, there were shepherdesses. Moses' wife was a shepherdess. Um, but they trusted their shepherd. The, how did they display that trust? Wherever their shepherd went, they followed. Finally, oh no wait, not finally, that's the next one. Uh, third, do we find our peace and the protection of our shepherd and the empathy of our shepherd no matter what we face or go through. Again, I know that's hard. We're told if we, if we be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We know that. How many of us apply it in the midst of the valley? No, I don't. I'm not saying this to accuse you. I'm saying... We're all there. We all go through. Finally, do we believe the promises of what's to come? Oh, I sure hope so. Gets me out of bed in the morning, folks. So Philip Keller, I'm going to steal his conclusion. So you'll have a good conclusion other than mine. He wrote, There can be an habitual awareness of Christ within me, 
empowering me to live a noble and richly rewarding life in cooperation with himself. As I respond to him and move in harmony with his wishes, I discover life becomes satisfying and worthwhile. It acquires great serenity and is made an exciting adventure of fulfillment as I progress in it. This is made possible as I allow his gracious spirit to control, manage, and direct my daily decisions. In fact, I should deliberately ask for his direction even in minute details. Then there is the wider but equally thrilling awareness of God all around me. I live surrounded by the presence, by his presence. I am an open person, an open individual, living life open to his scrutiny. He is conscious of every circumstance I encounter. He attends me with care and concern because I belong to him. And this will continue throughout eternity. What an assurance. You've got to get the book. Philip Keller, Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. With that, let's pray. Father, I love you. And I don't, I don't know what else to say. I just thank you that you are my shepherd, that you are shepherd of my brothers and sisters here tonight and anybody who might be joining us online. Father, that you provide this care. You bring us upon yourself so that you're always with us, always caring for us. Father, I know there are times we need correction. It's not pleasant, but you do it because you love us and you want us to be closer to you. And Lord, help us to constantly recognize the protection that you offer. We never go through anything that you haven't been through before us. And when we get there, we never go through it alone. Surely goodness and mercy will follow each of us all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name.